The Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. I'm Justin Roberts, and it's Festive Friday on the Biz News Power Hour. So much to get through. More good news coming through. SAA going private. Giron Novak going to be the CEO of that private entity. That's on the back of ESCOM allowing or easing the regulations, rather, for independent power producers. More good news coming through on the South African government front. Are we going to see the Roaring Twenties? Who knows? These reforms are good, but they may take a few years to implement. And we'll see how that pans out on the show later. More interesting news coming from NASPIS. It's at boiling point there. 36 fund managers or activist shareholders have gotten together. They've emailed Kuis Becker and Hendrik Tatoy, who's on the board. He's also the founder of Investic Asset Management, which, which has been spun out of Investic to form 91 about 15 months ago. Alec Hogg spoke to four of those signatories, that being Anthony Sedgwick, Shane Watkins, Asif Mohammed, and Delphine Governor. That is not to miss. That's with regards to the complex shareholding structure, NASPIS and the share ratio swap between NASPIS and process, and the alignment of management interests with shareholders. What has Bob Van Dyke done? Yes, Chris Becker made one of the best investments ever with regard to Tencent 20 years ago, but what have the recent management done to add value to that business? Jackie Cameron of Biz News also spoke to Luwazi Bum, CEO of Deloitte, unpacking exactly what auditors' roles are and where the fraud detection falls into their scope of responsibility. A very interesting story there. And then because it's Festive Friday, Carrie Adams, as always, uh, she wraps up the show. She chats to one of the directors at LVMH, uh, the biggest luxury goods brand group in the world, regarding one of their upmarket champagnes, Verve Clico, an absolutely stunning interview and not to miss. But first, the Biz News Flash Briefing with my colleague Nadia Swart. South Africa has agreed to sell a majority stake in the country's grounded national carrier to a local jet leasing company and private equity firm, ridding the government of an entity that has long been a drain on state finances, reports Bloomberg. A consortium comprised of Johannesburg-based Global Airways, which owns recently launched domestic airline Lyft, and private equity firm Harith General Partners will take a 51% shareholding in South African Airways, Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordhan said on Friday. The grouping, named Takatso, will invest as much as 3.5 billion rand over the next three years, Lyft co-founder Gidon Novik and Harith Chief Executive Officer Tsepo Mahlole said in an interview. The sale of SAA comes about six weeks after the airline emerged from lengthy bankruptcy proceedings, having reduced its workforce by almost 80% and cut liabilities. A number of South Africa's top asset managers have teamed together against the complex shareholding structure and lack of management alignment in South Africa's two largest businesses, Naspers and Process. The discount in its share price to its investment in Chinese tech titan Tencent has widened following a number of unsuccessful corporate actions. In an email addressed to Kurs Bakker and Hendrik de Toy, NASPIS non-executive director and chief executive of 91, the investors outlined their concerns, many of which they say have only gotten worse since Van Dyke's appointment. 
South Africa's government has criticized the United Arab Emirates for failing to cooperate with its requests for assistance in bringing to justice people suspected of being involved in corruption. This is according to Bloomberg, which reports that the two nations have finalized and ratified extradition and mutual legal assistance treaties that may signal a change of course by the UAE authorities. Justice Minister Ronald Lamole said Friday in an online briefing. And that was your business flash briefing. I'm Nadia Swart for business. For more on these and the other big stories of the day, visit businessradio.com. Well, it's unprecedented. A collaborative investor letter that was written today or sent today by 36 asset managers who between them control more than three and a half trillion rands worth of assets. They sent it to the chairman, Kurs Becker, and the lead independent director, Hendrik de Toy of the Process NASPAS grouping. Uh, four of them are with us today. Thank you very much for joining us at such short notice. Uh, perhaps we can kick off with you, Asif Mohammed. Uh, Asif is the CIO of Aon Investment Managers. What is the whole purpose behind – well, no, I won't do that. Let's rather start on a different note. Uh, we've known each other for decades, Asif. I've never seen anything like this before. It seems unprecedented, is it? Yes, it is unprecedented. It's never happened before. There have been collaborations with about three, four, five asset managers in South Africa, and credit to Delphine, you know, for for putting it together. And we've managed to get thirty-five asset managers globally. Um, I think also you know, there's a couple of other people also helped with that. Um, other asset managers. I think it's unprecedented uh, in terms of collaboration and the effort. The question is really whether we're going to achieve the desired objective or not, and whether NASPES management and process management are going to listen to us and whether they're going to, like they've done before, steamroller transactions, you know, before, and, and, and they say they listen. Whether they really listen and do what we want is a different issue. Yeah. Delphine? Is this all your work? Is this what Asif is telling us? <laughs> I think there was the, every every grouping and any collaboration needs a facilitator. So I was just handling logistics and someone had to kind of be the one that emailed the letter to the company. It was very much 36 um, firms, you know, equally contributed in terms of um, the collaboration. Um, just perpetuates a co-signatory along with, with the other 35. Um, I mean, but I think the point that Asif makes is that um, it is unprecedented, but, I, but it's really more than just the action it's the heart of the action what goes to the heart of the action why would you know 36 typical competitors you know decide to agree and i think it comes down to the foundational element that all of us doesn't matter whether it's 200 asset managers in south africa or thousands globally there's one thing that we are all meant to be and that's responsible responsible investors and and this really goes to the heart of stewardship and that the collaboration is um is focusing on what we have in common which is that we have to be responsible stewards and, and we didn't believe that as we all assess separately assess this transaction um we didn't believe that if we went silent without voicing concerns and when we discovered there were so many collectors concerns that we would be discharging our stewardship duties effectively without bringing these concerns. Um, And I think the important point to note just before others step in is that um, it's not as though concerns have not been raised with the executive management. And this letter uh, was actually directed directly to the non-execs. It was an escalation to go directly to the non-execs and say, um, you know, we feel as though some of the concerns haven't been heard. 
Um, and this is, we just want to, you know, re-emphasize them. Delphine Govind is the chief executive and uh, founder of Perpetua Investment Managers. She's also a former Alan Gray uh, rock star investor. I see Alan Gray is not in this group. Neither is Old Mutual. Neither is Sunlum. Neither is Liberty Coronation 91. Did they, did you, well, I, I can't say did you reach out? Did the group, did the 36 uh, companies involved here not reach out to them or did they just not want to join? Um, they were reached out to. I, th- I mean, it's an interesting point uh, because one of the things the process actually highlighted is that um, the whole process, the whole process of collaborative engagement, should become quite more, much more formalised in South Africa. We should, you know, there should be better structures, independent structures created, and hopefully, out of this, um, that will come. And maybe organisations like the PRI, which many of us are signatories to, could facilitate such a, such a pro- uh, process um, of collaboration. So they were reached out to. I think it's, you know. Um, some of the larger managers are used to paddling their own canoes and, and need to be seen to be doing that. Anthony Sedgwick is the uh, director of ABAX Investments. Anthony, uh, before we go into the nuts and bolts of all of this, uh, I see the public investment commissioners are involved. So the PIC is part of the whole process. From your perspective, was it easy enough to join, to collaborate in uh, this with the other 35 asset managers? Uh, very easy, Alec. Um, we, you know, chatting to the other managers when we were first approached, um, we were delighted to find that so many other people shared the frustrations that are listed in the letter that we have. Um, we've made every effort now for several years to try and uh, raise these on the agenda with the executive directors, uh, all of which have sadly failed completely. And so we were delighted to find so many other people had uh, had a similar experience and and were having to resort to having to escalate it uh, to in, in the manner that we have so bob van dijk and basil scordos are not listening they they might have heard what you said but they're not acting on it is that the message that i'm to take from that uh, comment that you made that's certainly the case yes um, i mean we know that they're under the direction of uh, of a board of directors um and so yeah it's been an extremely frustrating process um you know, we were opposed to the original listing of process um, if you look at the subsequent uh, experience the shareholders have had with the further widening of the discount that has been a completely failed transaction and we think that the current one as it's proposed is a step backwards rather than a step forwards um, and it's very disappointing to find that, um, you know, the management and the board of the company are diametrically opposed to the opinion of not just ABEX, but apparently 36 other people. And we know from our discussions that those larger organizations that you've just mentioned who aren't signatories to this document share our feelings uh, and are engaging with the, with the firm directly themselves expressing similar uh, reservations. Well, the fourth of our guests today is um, Shane Watkins, who's the Chief Investment Officer of All Weather Capital. Uh, Shane, the letter is addressed to Kurs Becker, the chairman, and to Hendrik Dutoy as the lead independent non-executive director. Now, Hendrik Dutoy is also the founder of 91 Asset Management. So I guess uh, it, it doesn't doesn't wouldn't surprise anybody that 91 is not 
uh, a signatory of this uh, this letter, but it also raises some pretty big question marks about what side of the fence they sit on if their founder is uh, is on the board. Are you hoping that perhaps by addressing it to Hendrik that you will you'll open some doors here? Um, hi, Alec. Well, look, obviously it was sent to Hendrik in his capacity as a lead independent non-exec of NASPAS. Um, you know, I mean, look, Hendrik is a, obviously a very smart, very accomplished guy, and he must recognize the conflict of interest that he obviously faces and the potential reputational damage that can accrue to him or 91, you know, if we don't, if he doesn't deal with this matter uh, properly. Um you know what I would. One of the catalysts, I think, for bringing this, you know, 36 asset managers together, um, you know, was I think the the way that management conducted the conference call um, after they announced this cross-holding transaction, where Chris Wood from Prudential asked what I thought was a very legitimate question, and he was spoken to an, in an extraordinarily rude and discourteous way um, by Bob Van Dyke. Um, I thought he, the issue he raised was completely legitimate and, um, you know, Bob, I think, didn't respond appropriately. And, you know, the way that I would characterize this is I would say to the NUSPAS um, board that, of course, they're entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. The facts are there right in front of us. And Bob van Dyke, up until now, in terms of the outcomes he's achieved, has been a terrific disappointment, okay? I mean, there are numerous transactions we can point to that have left 5 and $10 billion plus on the table, okay? As Andy Sedgwick said, he listed process, and the NUSPAS discount has widened. We're actually worse off. So I really think that the board has got to consider whether um, the interventions of Bob van Dyke have been successful and in my opinion, they need to reconsider his suitability in his role. Is he not under a lot of pressure? Because uh, both Bob and Basil Skordos have put their necks on the line to say they will reduce the discounts. They've done a lot to uh, to attempt to do that. And as you say, nothing's happened yet. So surely from a board and shareholder position, there would be a lot of stress, which might account for that uh, knee-jerk reaction in the conference call. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, all I'm saying is measured by the outcomes, things are not going according to plan. Asif, uh, from your perspective, why did you sign this letter? And I think uh, I'd like to ask all, all the four of you this. Uh, clearly, you'd be representative of the group generally. And you could maybe also highlight what part of the proposal that was put on the uh, on the table on the the share exchange offer between NASPAS and Process uh, is is what triggered you into this action. Okay, the first thing I think there's simpler solutions around it. I don't really want to go into the the solution, and it's been you know touted by international investors. There, there is a simple solution to unlock the discount. I think what they're trying to, maybe I should go into that, but what they're trying to do, what, what the solution is, list 10 cents separately in the in process, unbundle all the other stuff that classifies, you know, um, the you know the, the delivery business and stuff like that. And that can stand it down. My guess is, and, I'm, and I've said gone on record, is that they're using the 10 cent investment and the 10 cent dividend as a crutch for that other expansion program. If they want to, 
you know, and, and that, 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 that I have a problem with. I mean, they made a great investment. Tencent has worked out really well and give them credit for that. But I think, you know, the, to unlock the discount, to, to get additional value, they need to separate the two. The other thing that they've done is also they did the share buyback from the announced and they did most of it, $5 billion. They've lost it all. The, the discount has widened, you know, is Bob and his team, you know, on the board, are they going to pay back all these incentive awards and massive amounts of excessive remuneration? Highly unlikely, no. They're not going to take accountability for that. So what they've done in this specific instance, it's not worked. You know, we can criticize them on other transactions and all of those things, but these are the broad issues. The cross-holding we've got a problem with and the complexity that arises with the cross-holding. Cross-holdings are out globally. And, you know, the, the incentivization, where, where the costs are and all of those things. So those are the two broad issues. There are other issues also, but let's just focus on the two broad issues. As if I did ask Bob van Dijk in the media conference call that I was in after this deal, why don't they uh, list Tencent separately? And his reaction was, well, we're on the board of Tencent and we learn a lot from Tencent. And without having that close relationship we we would be at a disadvantage. Do you not buy that? No, I certainly don't buy that. I'd rather pay his fees to go to Harvard Business School than, uh, than use that argument, you know. Um, you can still see what they're doing by their financial statements and all of those things and where they invest. I mean, it's a very expensive call fees, $5 billion to, to, to learn that. I mean, it's, you know, the, the share biker back, it's not working, um, you know, the other reasons, yeah, I, I, I don't buy it. If they came back to me and said there was a tax issue or something like that, and they haven't come back saying that there's a tax issue or other leakage or anything else, then I listen, we listen to it. And if they've got a valid argument, we'll, we'll, we'll support them. But so far, I've not had uh, an alternative view on that. Uh, Delphine, why did you decide uh, on behalf of Perpetua to sign this letter? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I mean, that's the question. And I think, and why now, you know, because, um, as you know, my colleagues have uh, pointed out, you know, you could, you could work out when, when do you go back in time and start working out, you know, um, kind of when things started to become a little bit murky, um, here. Um, and, but really it came down to the fact that there was this proposed transaction on the table, um, which is this, you know, process, um, voluntary exchange offer for the NASDAQ shares and, and, and really locating the concerns that triggered from this transaction and what this transaction meant, um, in terms of just the overall investment case, um, and then specifics of the transaction. I think this is where things start to get a little bit, um, almost, uh, complicated because, um, management, have um, almost, you know, singularly put forward one single reason for this transaction, which is that they're trying to reduce the NASPAS weights um, in the SWIX effectively. That's effectively what they're saying. Um, and that's the single reason that's continuously underlined. But actually, the, the concerns that arise from the transaction because of what is required to be done in order to bring that um, you know, objective to bear, their, their core objective is, is hugely complicated. And so when we, when you look at the concerns, and I think this is where Perpetua started to really, um, you know, get, you know, um, interested was that they are, they locate themselves in two elements. First, problematic responses to some of the reasons management have put forward. So we, we don't agree with management's contention that that's a good enough reason, but that's kind of a commercial rationale for the transaction. Um, and then on the basis that, that they're proceeding, the, the, the exchange ratio that they're offering NASPAS shareholders to swap out for the process, but then more importantly are the governance concerns. And I think that's, 
that's the, that's that's always the overarching element. We think governance at process and NASPAS worsens through this transaction. Um, there's more opacity. There's more complexity. We don't think it, it, it improves. Now, if we had better visibility, what comes after this, perhaps we could see it. But um, it's just perplexing why a board of incredibly um, esteemed non-execs would want to prevail over a transaction that unequivocally worsens governance. Shane, uh, you... Um, have a have a uh, an, an addition an additional point to that. Sorry. Sure, sure. So so look, Alec. I mean, the, the, as Delphine said, they say we need to do this transaction to reduce the weight of NASPERS on the JSE because that's why the discount is there. It's because the weighting is too big. I mean, that's completely nonsense. Okay, process is less than one percent of the European index it's in, and it also trades at a 35% discount. So the argument that NASPAS is too big and that's why the discount is there is just nonsense. They need to explain to us what the reason for the process discount is there. And the reason why you signed this letter? Um, look, I, I think what they're doing is utterly wrong. I think that they are like, you know, it's very evident that there are corporate governance problems at NASPAS. And the reason that those problems persist is because there's an end share structure where ordinary shareholders can't remove directors um, by a simple vote. And this is an arrogant, dismissive um, executive supported by a board that are not doing their job. But they would probably say you knew this before you invested in the first place, i.e. that there are end shares and that they do have these control structures that exist. Uh, sure, and that, that's completely true, but that doesn't mean that you can flout corporate governance just because you have a structure that doesn't allow you to be removed. Uh, Anthony, your thoughts on uh, on this and also the reasons why you signed uh, the, the letter? Um, Alec, I think the, the team have covered you know, the, the you know the points pretty accurately already, and um, you know I'm just going to repeat what they've what's already been communicated. I share we share all of the concerns that have been raised already. Uh, this is a you know this is a, a very badly constructed transaction. It is not in the interests of process shareholders. It is definitely not in the interests of NASPAS shareholders, and we'll be encouraging. Um, our clients, and to the extent that we have the mandate to do so, will be voting against the transaction and certainly not tendering any NASPAS shares. This is a terrible deal. So what do other uh, NASPAS shareholders, the many South Africans who own the shares in a private capacity, your advice presumably to them would also be to vote against the deal? Yes, it will be my strongest advice that they do so. Uh, the board of this company have consistently applied a strategy of a divide and conquer. And the only thing they're going to understand is when not just all 36 of us who've signed the letter, but all 84,000 must-pass shareholders, shareholders out there, get up, come to the AGM, voice your opinions, send a message back to the boards of these two companies of just what a terrible deal this is and what a shocking uh, proposal it is to present to shareholders. Asif, how, how are you going to get, uh, as, as we come to the, the end of this conversation, and I'd, I'd, I'd also like to, to get all of your views on this, how are you going to get the pressure or the necessary pressure to do the simple solution, as you've suggested, which is unlock uh, value by 
uh, unbundling Tencent. The, the problem every NICEPAS shareholder today has is that if I sell the shares, even though I don't like what management are doing, if tomorrow their sanity prevails and they unlock Tencent, the share price would rocket. So you kind of caught as an investor between a rock and a hard place. You know, it comes down to the two questions you made about, you said, you know, you, you went in and you knew all the high voting structure in the seats. And that's the point. I've, I first want to address that, and it answers the second question you've got. When two or three years ago, or four years ago, the AGM, it says, why do you still have these high voting shares? And Quiz says, uh, the chairman, uh, it's to satisfy the Chinese government because they don't want an Apple or Google with big, deep pockets of money to buy that. And I buy that argument. But I said, you know, you shouldn't be using these high voting shares to exploit corporate governance and to push strand through deals and that there. And that was a crucial and key concern. Um, what I'm saying on the case of Tencent is not unbundling. What you do is you leave Tencent in process and you bund- unbundle all the rest. You still have the high voting position there, but you only use it to satisfy the Chinese government, not to push through REM or, or steamroll any other transactions or whatever the case might be. And, and, and poor poor governance. That's that's what you do. That's that's exploiting. That's old apartheid style tactics, by the way. You know, certain people had the votes, and now that you know, and they, they do that. So that's my, if you might call it, the, the answer to that. You know what? You know, will it go forward? I think you know, with Anthony and you know, saying and everybody else saying we vote against, go to the AGM in force, whether it's virtually or whatever, make our voices heard, and they and hopefully sanity prevails. That's all we can hope for. Do, do bear in mind that the NASPES, uh, they are 72% of, of, of process, and they'll vote that 72% in favor without the high voting shares. So what we're going to do is possibly argue there's a conflict of interest or interested party on the 72% on the one side, which, which may or may not appear. But I think our biggest position is is a voice, as Angie said, the loud voice, and we need to go out there and really make our views heard because... The buyback of that five billion rand is essentially gone, wasted, and it hasn't narrowed the discount. We can talk about other transactions also, but that's essentially the point I'm trying to make. Delphine? Yeah, so I think as to Asif's point and Ant's point is that um, there's an interesting there's an interesting situation because um, the management and the board well know very well that um, actually they don't need process shareholders to vote in favor, the, the outside process shareholders to vote in favor of it because NASPAS owns 72% and they can just vote in favor and, you know, Bob's your uncle, as they'd say. So they can they can do it. But the reality is much more, um, well, if that if they know that that's the case, if this is a fait accompli. So the point is that um, do they still proceed? Clearly they are, based on the SENS announcement they released last night, um, which made it very clear that they believe they firmly believe that, you know, the 15 non-execs and the two execs firmly believe that this transaction is in the best interest of NASPAS and process shareholders. They believe it's going to unlock value. So, you know, we have to assume that, that they, that's proceeding and that shareholders don't have much say on the actual vote. So the question is, um, what do you have a say on? And to Anne's point, you have a say on whether you choose, it's voluntary, to tender your shares on it. So NASPAS shareholders can absolutely say, we are not happy with the terms. We think the exchange ratio is not equitable, notwithstanding what management say, um, and, and that as a result, um, failing there being a change um, and an improvement in the exchange ratio, we will not be tendering our shares. 
Um, and I think that's a very important message that 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 NASPA shareholders have, um, since it is voluntary and um, and yeah, you, you, you have no compulsion to do so. So eighty four thousand. You'd like to get as many of those eighty four thousand to uh, follow in those footsteps, Jane. Uh, Shane, to to actually vote against this transaction. But it sounds to me like you'd like it to go a little bit further. Uh, to maybe uh, use this as a catalyst to focus more on the mismanagement by management. So I think before this gets to a vote, Alec, what we would like is I would like the board to have an objective review of the performance of the executive management and specifically Bob van Dyke. Okay. Bob crows about the value they've added in the great performance. And as I say, if you strip out the 10 cent share price uplift, the performance that he's delivered is negative. Okay. And his actions, and I presume this is, you know, driven by him as the CEO, this proposal by him as the CEO has created tremendous bad feeling and animosity and mistrust. Um, and I would like the board to examine his conduct and performance objectively and say, is he really doing a great job worthy of hundreds and hundreds of million of rand per annum or not? I mean, I would simply argue based on the facts, he's not. Anthony, final word from you. You're crazy to tender your shares. Send as strong a message as you can. This is a terrible deal, and you should oppose it in whatever way you're capable of doing. Joining me, Jackie Cameron, for BizNews is the chairman of the SA Institute of Chartered Accountants and Deloitte CEO Lawazi Bum to pick up on the Bryden report and what it might mean for South African auditors. The UK... Uh, went through an extensive uh, process to understand what potential um, reforms need to be undertaken for the audit profession post the collapse uh, of Carnelion and others. You had the Competition Markets Authority that focused largely on competition. You had the Sir Kingman study, and then you had Sir Donald Bryden, whose focus was on audit quality and audit effectiveness. So he's done quite a thorough process and research around this. And part of the process that he undertook was to ask for views from various bodies, the firms, the regulators, Institute of Chartered Accountants across the world, corporates around the UK. This was obviously primarily based on the UK. And then based on all that, he's come up with a set of recommendations. Those set of recommendations have subsequently, a significant amount of them have been adopted by the UK government. And the UK government is now in the process of opening it up for comment from the general public. The reason why we invited him is that, I guess, as a South African profession, we also need to go through that. And rather than starting on a blank slate, we felt it was important to understand the perspectives of those that have gone ahead of us and see what they've learned and whether we can incorporate any of that in our own processes. One of the key points that was made 
was that auditors shouldn't be held accountable for detecting fraud. Am I right in understanding that was his comment? I think the point that he was making, there's a discussion about whether the scope of an audit should be expanded to that of detecting fraud. His view was that if you were to expand the scope of an audit to fraud detection, it will be extremely expensive. He doesn't believe that the benefits would outweigh the costs of doing that. What he's done in his report, he has uh, made certain recommendations around how auditors should enhance what they do uh, to give them a fair chance, or, well, they, they, let me use the, the words that he's used, uh, to be able to demonstrate that uh, they've taken reasonable steps to uncover fraud if it were to happen. So uh, training, additional training in terms of forensics, a database from the regulators of, of fraud case studies and auditors would need to demonstrate that they had taken that into account, uh, built it into their audit processes to give them a fair chance of being able to detect it. And the test being, have you taken reasonable steps? Not that you, you have as your primary requirement or as one of your expectations, the duty of detecting fraud. Why have auditors been so bad at picking up corporate fraud? I guess because at the moment it is not part of the scope of an auditor to detect fraud. So if you were to change it, you would need to structure the audit in a completely different way to how we do it now in order to detect fraud. And this is where the debate of cost versus benefit comes in. And just for people who are not accountants or in the accounting world, what do auditors do if it isn't to detect fraud? Oh, Jackie, that's, I mean, that's the, 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 that's a very big question. That's exactly what he was talking about. So the auditors are there at the moment to look at state financial statements to arrive at the question whether statements are materially misstated and fraud, they need to structure the, 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 the audit in a way that puts them in a position that they could detect fraud, but it is not aimed at detecting fraud. And there's, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a semantics, but it is actually quite a big difference. So if you, if you go there and you go and your primary one of, so you say, well, I'm there to prove that the statements are not materially misstated. I'm there to uh, prove that there is no fraud. How you would conduct the audit will be completely different. But what's the difference uh, between the moment, a material misstatement and fraud? I mean, if you look at Steinhoff, for example, things must have been misstated to some extent. Yeah, so they were. But again, as I said, it is, it was, the, the, yes, they were misstated because of fraud. 
Okay, they were not misstated because you had a, an asset that was in the book that was incorrectly valued, which is what an auditor would look at. They were not misstated because you had uh, accounts receivable that were not actually receivable. What said Donald says is that it is it will be very difficult to when you've got the certain levels of fraud where there is collusion, uh, where an auditor has no chance of picking up. And the other thing that he makes is that it is primarily the duty of directors uh, to create an environment that the financial statements that they present, remember the, the directors are the ones that own the financial statements. They, so we provide assurance on financial statements that have been put forward by directors. So the directors have the primary responsibility of putting in controls to ensure that if there was fraud, it was detected or prevented. But even in that case, there will still be certain levels of fraud that would be impossible to detect even for, for directors. You've been listening to the chairman of the SA Institute of Chartered Accountants and Deloitte CEO, Lawazi Bum. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. Well, today we are very, very lucky to be chatting to David White, who is the general manager for Southern Africa and the marketing director Africa and the Middle East at Moat Hennessy. David, hi. Thanks so much for joining me on Biz News. Good morning, Carrie. No problem at all. Delighted to be here. And uh, apologies that that title was such a mouthful. It sounds hugely important, but then I know you are hugely important. So we need a title <laughs> that big, don't we? I would never dare to say. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think I could agree with either of those points. Uh, the <laughs> title are. is. is you are. And in fact, next time I interview you, I hope there's another few extras that have been put on there because one would imagine or hope that with each extra title, there's a couple more, maybe three more notes on your salary package. Ah, oh, well, that would be very nice. Yes, uh, yes I'm afraid uh, that, that doesn't happen very often. But no, look, joking aside, it's, uh, it's a wonderful role that I have mm-hmm. uh, working for Moet Hennessy based in Cape Town, but with responsibility. For marketing our wonderful portfolio of brands across Africa and the Middle East. Yes. Um, and then more recently, I was uh, given that additional responsibility to be the general manager for Southern Africa. So um, South Africa being the dominant market there, but the surrounding uh, countries to South Africa as well. Mm. David, have you noticed a massive sort of leap in the growth of sales? Because we did in retail in South Africa in the last five to ten years, we've noticed a massive uptake in the sales of of bubbly in south africa absolutely um i mean south africa has been uh, a success story for for us and others of course over the last 10 to 15 years it's been a market that we've put more and more focus towards and um yeah i think the the love of champagne in particular um has has been something that we've seen growing um our spirits portfolio as well is is going extremely well yes, um, yes the market has a has a taste for the finer the finer quality <laughs> product well nobody more excited than me because i do love bubbles it's one of my favorite things in my whole life and i have to tell you that the reason that I really wanted to chat to you today is because I was invited to be part of bold conversations that you hosted in South Africa in the last week. I think you had one or two bold conversations. 
I couldn't because we had load shedding the day that I was supposed to be oh, there. Oh, no. I was so desperate. Anyway, Lucien very kindly said, let's let's get you on the phone with David. So this is why we're here. Um, Verve Clico is an extraordinary brand. And I think that, that Dame or Madame Clico has really to be the quintessential can-do story for anybody, not just women. She was an amazing chick. She was 27 years old recently widowed and took over the running of a major champagne house. Tell us a little bit about this amazing woman. Uh, you, you've, you've told the first chapter of the story already there, Carrie. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the, the house, the brand, was, was founded in 1772 by her father-in-law, um, and her husband inherited the reins of the business. Uh, but sadly passed away in 1805 as a a very young man. Mm. Um, Her husband, Francois, died. So as you said, she was 27. She had a daughter, a young daughter. She found herself a widow. Um, And in France at that time, a woman was considered a minor under the responsibility of a man. So, you know, she had no rights to a bank (laughs) account. Um, There was there was really no woman in business. You know, she had no Mm. model to live up to. um, And she inherited this still relatively small uh, brand, this, this relatively small winery at that time. Mm. Um, but she had incredible vision. She had incredible drive and she had an incredible ambition. Um, and the motto that she founded um, in those very early days that we still use today was only one quality, the finest. Now, no, isn't that, that sounds, amazing? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I think we need to go back to 1805 and just think what she was actually taking on with that line because in those days there was no there was no crew scale in the world of champagne you know yep. there was no gradation of uh, of the quality of the vineyard um, the winemaking techniques were not very sophisticated in 1805 and yet she set herself this ambition to make only one quality the finest mm. um, she inherited around four hectares of vineyards um, when her husband passed away. But within a couple of years, she purchased a large estate of 41 hectares. So she grew tenfold in terms of the, the vineyards that she was buying. Um, and that was in, in three villages, Bouzy, Verzenay, and Verzy. Mm. Now, I only mentioned those three because she obviously knew what she was doing. They have all become Grand Cru villages yes. uh, in, <laughs> in, in the modern yes. times. Exactly. <laughs> so um, she had an intuition for the business. She, uh, she, she knew a good grape and a good vineyard and a, and a great terroir when she saw it. Um, and that you know, has carried through to today. Um, 95% of Verfrico's vineyards are Grand and Premier Cru uh, based on those kind of foundations that she laid down. Mm. Um, I could wax lyrical about Madame Clico all morning, but, but, you know, let me just give really three key highlights which demonstrated her creativity, her entrepreneurialism, her, her innovation. Um, she was the first to bring a vintage champagne to market in 1810, so just five years into her, uh, into her tenure. Um, perhaps most critically, in 1816, she invented the riddling table. Yes. Um, and that was copied and has been used to this day by all other champagne houses. And, and the main purpose of a riddling table is to take the fermentation sediments out of the bottle and to deliver a crystal clear product. Yes. So only in 1816 did you start to get crystal clear champagne. And it was all thanks to Madame Clicquot. Um, and her final most infamous um, Innovation was that in 1818, she blended the first rosé champagne. So um, there are two or three different techniques, as you all know, Carrie, for for producing rosé wines. But she was the first to bring a blended rosé to market in 1818. So um, incredible vision. 
complete trailblazer, really. And I think um, one of the pioneers, because champagne, for me, one of the reasons I love it, not because I'm a feminist by any stretch of the imagination, I wouldn't mind being considered a minor and looked after and cosseted and spent my life on a continental pillow for the rest of time. I wouldn't mind that. But she, th- there were a number of women who, who spearheaded excellence amongst females in the Champagne region, she being probably the most dynamic of them. And I do think that she sends out a very bold message to everybody that you don't have an excuse, do you? She um, was renowned for having an iron hand in a velvet glove, Carrie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that quote was used about her as she as she ran the Maison. Um, so she had that boldness. She had that drive. Uh, but she also had the veneer and the politeness to be able to uh, persuade and uh, and get things done um, with, with, with charm and, uh, and with politeness. And, she was brilliant. Did she ever remarry? Uh, she never did, no. Um, not to the best of my knowledge. It's certainly not recorded in the in the no, annals. Me neither. That I'm aware That's of. why I was asking you because I thought maybe you had some inside track that I didn't know. But everything <laughs> I think I've... she was probably married to the job. <laughs> yes, yes. And we never really knew what her husband died of either. It was just a tragic early death, wasn't it? I, I, I believe so. Yes. Uh, mm. the, again, his death certificate doesn't uh, doesn't give us that information, but. I know. Um, uh, yeah, ultimately she became known as the Grande Dame of Champagne, so um, the Great Lady of Champagne, and therefore I do think she dedicated the rest of her life to Veuve Clicquot uh, and those those innovations. And sadly, David, uh, we don't get La Grande Dame in South Africa anymore. Are you going to change that for us? Are we going to be able to buy some La Grande Dame again? Well, it, it, you need to know uh, where to find a bottle, and if you look pretty hard, you can probably find one. But in short, Carrie, there is um, a definite plan to bring some uh, uh, some relatively low number of cases, but it's an, an expensive product, you know, yes. Prestige Cuvée. Um, we will be uh, bringing in some cases um, over the course of the next few months, for sure. Fantastic. Absolutely. And, and David, where Verve is positioned within the group, you're happy with it. It's producing. It's we haven't got production problems because my tummy tells me that we can't make enough champagne because it's all confined to a specific area in France, which is champagne. We can't plant more grapes. We can't. But they did sort of talk about um, increasing the appellation, but I don't know if that's actually happened or if the grapes have actually come of age yet. If they did plant more. So what are we going to do about trying to meet this massive, ever-growing demand? Have you got plans afoot? Um, there are plans afoot, but as you has, have rightly pointed out, there is... So um, even if we do look, I say we, the champagne industry is able to you know, move the boundaries a little bit and add a, and add a few vineyards here and there, um, it's, not going to, it's not going to become a... Uh, a vast lake of champagne as we go forward into the future. There there will be limitations. Um, At some point, we're we're, we're not there yet. There is, uh, you know, no concern for anybody in the short term. No need to go out and be (laughs) snapping up the bottles (laughs) off the shelf. Um, I mean, speaking frankly, you know, the the post-COVID um, impact has had some some challenges on supply for, yes. for many many categories, uh, not just wines and spirits. Um, you know, shipment containers being in the right place at the right time, for example, mm. is, is mm. quite a, a renowned headline across industries. So there there have been some short term 
um, interruptions, if I can say that, to mm. to supply lines, but uh, nothing to be worried about in the mid to long term. Mm. Well, I think that in this time of crisis that we all find ourselves in, which I'm really desperately, deeply hoping, praying, I, I have conversations with the universe every morning saying, please could today, could you wipe out this that's going on? It's dreadful. But if it doesn't get wiped out anytime soon, the very best antidote is bubbling. And Verfclico is probably one of the best that you can possibly get. So if I were to say to you, our listeners need a little direction from you, David, what, what, I know that you probably haven't got a favorite, but what would you recommend they, if they don't know the brand, what do they start with? You can't go wrong with a bottle of Verfclico yellow label, as we call it. It's the, Center of our Verfclico universe. Um, it's the, the, you know, the brute version of Verfclico. Um, that for me would be a, a, an ideal purchase. Um, having said that, you can probably tell I'm not from South Africa with my accent. Mm-hmm. Um, having, having moved here about 18 to 24 months ago, um, I know that the, African consumer, if I can dare to use such a broad term. Oh my goodness, tends you to could be a... slept in irons tomorrow. You never know. <laughs> yeah, so, but I know there's a, a tendency towards a sweeter palate and a sweeter yeah. profile of drink. And therefore, um, there's a wonderful product that comes in a, a silver looking bottle called Verfclico Rich, uh, which, which is a dose. So it has a, you know, a slightly higher dosage carry. And, uh, if you like something a little bit sweeter than Verfclico Rich, I would, uh, I would recommend it. I do process. love, I do love Demisec actually. I'm not sh- sort of shy enough to say that I won't drink Demisec. Lots of people won't admit to it. And I did I did love the way that you all went about packaging the rich because my my knowledge of Madame Kiko, I'm not sure she would have been too keen on bling and ritz and glitz and bits, but the packaging that you've put the rich into is so stylish and so classy and so in keeping with what she would have wanted. And yet it does meet the current day demand for bling and sparkle. You've done a really brilliant job on that. And I'm sure that the sales are through the roof. Uh, The sales in South Africa are extremely healthy. Let me say that. And and really the... The ambition behind Rich was to make champagne more readily available on different occasions throughout the week. So rather than, you know, being limited to that age old notion of special occasions and celebration only, mm. um, the, the idea behind Rich was to allow people to consume champagne uh, on a casual Saturday afternoon by the pool. And therefore oh, the, and the way goes... that we recommend serving it is, you know, chilled over ice with um, a variety of garnishes, uh, whether you like a bit of bell pepper or uh, the pineapple. Um, there are a, a list of serves that we recommend that uh, almost um, bring it into that more casual cocktail type uh, type thinking and, mm. and bring champagne into the everyday opportunity. I find that a bottle of rich is quite nice in the morning with a boiled egg and soldiers for breakfast. I, I, would, I would never dare open one that early <laughs> in the day. You might also be slept in irons for suggesting that. <laughs> David, it's been wonderful chatting to you. We are huge, huge supporters of the Mode Hennessy brands. You've done such an amazing job for everybody in the whole world, not just in, in South Africa and Africa. Thank you so much for an amazing brand. Thank you for making time for me and for Biz News. And I hope that we can speak again soon. I didn't realize that you'd, that you'd moved to Cape Town. I have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been coming to the market for, for over 20 years. So yes. I've always had a, 
always had a soft spot for South Africa. And uh, I mean, Cape Town is clearly one of the most beautiful cities in the world. So I consider myself extremely fortunate, not just to uh, work in the industry that I do and have the job that I do, but also to, to live in such a wonderful country and a wonderful city. I'm going to say, I hope you know that when you die, it's purgatory for you for the next 40 years because not many people get the life that you've got. As you say, the best <laughs> job in the world and the best city in the world. Spoiled absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. David, thank you so, so much. Um, we'll chat again soon. And as soon as we've got something new and innovative and what have you to speak on, I'll be absolutely certain to make sure that Lucian gets you on the phone for me. Thank you very much. Anytime, Carrie. It's been a pleasure and I uh, look forward to talking to you again. Cheers. Goodbye. Best of luck. Bye-bye. Today we're chatting to Rob Bastard, who is a member of a family that has been or made a massive contribution in South Africa. And I was lucky enough to be in a cozy little pub in Parktown North last night with none other than the gorgeous Rob Bastard. Rob, thanks for joining me on Biz News. Hello. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for your kind words. <laughs> <laughs> you are in Johannesburg and you are doing a little tasting, well you did a tasting for us last night which was an extraordinary tasting, it was a vertical tasting of six different vintages of the Remhoechter flagship Bordeaux style blend why don't we ever see the Thomas Cullinan on the shelves of, of any shops, what do you do with it Rob? Sure Gary, um, well first of all you know it's, it's, it's very small production, I mean some of the vintages we, ta- we tasted last night we only did 1,500 bottles so yeah. um, it's, it's very limited and uh, it, it is a wine that, uh, you know, we want to keep it special, unique, and only available in you know, specialist stores, and that sort yes. of thing. We do, we do export quite a bit as well, about half of it. Yes. Um, but it is something, you know, it's, a, it's something that we be focusing on. It's, it's a wine that's doing well, and we're steadily making a bit more of it as we can. You know, it's made from two single vineyards, so we're limited to how much we can make. But yes. we, we do want to get it available, and we do want to, want it to grow it slightly. So if I wanted to steal a few cases and put it onto a little Biz News Wine Club thing, would you give me some? Yes. No, of course. Yeah. No, we do. We do have. So our current vintage is 2016. Um, and uh, that's a, that's the one we're selling at the moment. We it's did about 6,000 bottles. And I tasted the 2017 last night, which is off the charts. Fantastic. Just for anybody who, who's interested in waiting for another year for it to be released. Rob, tell us the story, a little background quickly for my listeners of Rem Huerta. Your mum and dad moved down to the Cape. They gave up a really lavish, gorgeous, happy Johannesburg style of life and went down to the Cape when? Yes, yeah, Carrie. So, I mean, you know my folks and they, they left in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, I, I, like the, the Sir Thomas being a right bank Bordeaux style blend, it's that's really what got my dad into wine, and it was always a passion of his yes. to make a, make a style in South Africa in that style. So um, they, they started looking for property in uh, 93, and then 1994 we came across really the perfect site to, to make Merlot in, in South Africa. And it's, so we're on the Simonsburg Mountain in Stellenbosch on the southerly facing slopes of it. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we, we moved down in 1994, my dad made the first wines in 1995 with the help from um, the neighboring winemakers. Jean Daniel was a, was yes. a big help to him when he, when he was at Morganoff. Yes. And uh, we, we steadily grew from there until 
in 2000, we, we formed a partnership with Michel Roland. Um, I was so excited about that because, you know, as we said last night, he was so controversial, but I adore him. One of yes, the best yeah. palettes on the planet, and he's just put that Pomerol stamp onto Sir Thomas. I tasted it last night. It just, it's absolutely exceptional. So anybody who's listening and who wants to needs to get hold of us via Biz News or hold of Robbie um, at Remhurter Wine Estate because it is, it's under the radar. Not many people know about it. Not many people talk about it. And very few people have tasted it. And it's not the way it should be. We need to get more people to. It was just delicious. Honestly, Rob, I was so blown away last night by the yeah, quality of no, the wine. No, fantastic, Gary. Thanks. I really appreciate it. And, I, and uh, you know, so my brother spent a lot of time with Michelle. And uh, it's, it really influenced his style. So, you can um, taste really, it. You can yeah. pick it up. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. So, yeah. What are, the other thing that we need to speak about, because we haven't got long, I'm going to phone you, we're going to do a proper profile on you that we can use as a podcast, but for here and now, Fantastic. it's a quick update for a Friday. Yeah. But yeah. the Honey Bunch Chenin Blanc, we have to tell everybody quickly about that because it's not it's not Chenin Blanc weather. It's freezing cold. It's Sir Thomas yeah. weather at the moment. But if you're in your kitchen cooking curry for the weekend, you need to have a bottle of Honey Bunch. I tasted it again for the first time last night in a long time. Just gorgeous explosion of juicy, perfumey fruit in my mouth. I loved it. Old vines? Yes, yeah. No, Honey Bunch has really put us on the map. You know, it's a it's a really special vineyard. It was planted in 1987. Mm. Um, so we're about two years short of, of being heritage vineyards. Mm. Um, but just an incredible site. And so my brother made the – he always had a blending component for, for our Shannon that we were making. And it was a, sorry, a barrel component. Mm. And in 2010, um, he decided to, to bottle it on its own. And that's when Honey Bunch re- really started. So we're on our 10th vintage now. We're on the 2020. Um, and it's just an incredible site. You know, the, the vineyard is just so healthy. Um, we always get a nice element of botrytis on it. And for the Honey Bunch, we're just selecting the exposed bunches. So oh. we select, select those separately. We, we do about 12 hours in the skins and then it's barrel fermented in older French oak. And then we, we age it in the barrels, uh, usually for about 10 or 11 months. And then it's racked and bottled. So just a really nice expression of the site. No, it's beautiful. It's such fun. And why Honey Bunch? Is that what Dad calls Mum? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, we don't get called <laughs> Honey Bunch that often. <laughs> I'd like to think so. But my, my, my mom actually came up with a name. And, uh, you know, it, it was really just these, the, the bunches of just this incredibly incredible this beautiful honey gold color when you yeah, pick them so yeah, no. that's really where the name comes from but you know from the botrytis and the time in the barrel as well you get this really beautiful honey aroma on the white oh, sheet no it's so, gorgeous we want to bottle it a, as a perfume it smells delicious yeah, and, yeah it's gorgeous yeah. so this yeah, weekend thanks, everybody you get out there and buy a case of honey bunch or at least a few bottles that you can drink while you sort of cooking curries and things in your kitchen to keep warm over the weekend and if you're lucky enough you can find a bottle somewhere at a specialist wine store of Sir Thomas Cullinan, which is the most gorgeous Bordeaux-style blend. Robbie, thank you so, so much. It was great to catch up with you. Yeah, thanks, Carrie. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, and it was great to see you, and look forward to catching up again. 100%. Bye-bye. Thanks, Carrie. Bye. You've been listening to The Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.